Our gracious God in heaven, we thank You for this Lord's Day. We thank You that this is a day that is set apart by You, that we may rest from our labor, but we may most ultimately rest in the finished work of Christ our Savior. And it is in His name that we gather today, and it is in His name that we study And He is the living Word, and so we look to Your Word to be better students of it, that we may know You better, that we may always live under Your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So, just as a really quick review uh, from last week, uh, what we looked at, is the, the, the different genres of the Old Testament. And we looked at uh, the genre of narrative. And you may recall uh, that we just did a, a quick flyover of the book of Ruth. And, and I think that was at least helpful to me. I hope it was helpful to you to just see how uh, the narrative functioned with, within the Old Testament. Uh, then we looked at poetry. And uh, today, in fact... I, just to chase this rabbit briefly, um, I, I was reading a, a, a book just this last week that said one of the, the difficulties that we have as modern Christians uh, is even though we live in an era with a complete canon and a multitude of different resources at our hands, never have we had a, a greater wealth of access, um, but our disadvantage now, fascinatingly enough, is we're not as good of readers as just even two generations ago. And one of those areas that scholars are beginning to emphasize is we're not readers of poetry. Uh, and, you know, I mean, everybody kind of shakes their head because you think about this. Two gener- really one, one generation, but certainly two generations ago, it was common for anthologies of poetry to not only be published, but actually sell well. It was common, even two generations ago, uh, for Americans to be able to, at least from memory, quote, some poetry. Um, that's certainly not the case with my generation. I know it's not the case with my children's generation. And, well, because of that, we're not good students of poetry because we're not reading poetry, and so it puts us at a distinct disadvantage. Uh, So I found that interesting. I was reading this last uh, week, and I thought, all the more reason why we need to stop, slow down, don't be in such a hurry, don't carry our preconceived notions into it, learn to be good students of the Word, learn to read poetry. Uh, Number three, we looked at the wisdom literature and the different types of wisdom literature uh, from the the truisms of the Proverbs uh, to the unique exception-driven arguments of Ecclesiastes and everything in between, including the songs of songs. And then we looked at prophecy, and that uh, hopefully was helpful in looking at the Old Testament prophetic books and better understanding prophecy. For me, anyway, in studying this, the big takeaway was read the prophets in context. Uh, If you're you're reading um, uh, uh, helicopters and aircraft carriers into the book of Elijah, you probably missed it, right? Um, So read uh, the prophetic books within uh, context. So this week, we're going to look at the literary genres of the New Testament, 
And I want to start with one, and it's, it's one of those that we're so familiar with them that oftentimes that familiarity uh, breeds a, uh, a, a lack of understanding exactly what we're reading. And of course, I'm talking about the Gospels. The Gospels. Now, this is um, a unique literary feature to English translation of the Scriptures. Uh, sometimes there is a confusion between the gospel and the gospels. Uh, so I'll, I'll describe it in brevity. We understand what the gospel is, the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are sinners saved only by God's grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Him and in Him alone, we are forgiven of our sins. We are saved from the wrath of God. We are delivered unto life, even eternal life. And that's, of course, just a brief synopsis of what the gospel is. Confusingly, in English translation, once upon a time, uh, the... Four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were translated and given the same name, or the Gospels. And so sometimes you'll see this distinguished by a small g for the Gospel, but not always. Almost always you'll see the literary books referred to as the Gospels, capitalized with a capital G, uh, as they should be. But the main thing is, is just you have to understand how they're used. Um, and so the Gospels are distinct from the Gospel. The Gospels are not in their literary genre. And you, for, for you readers of the Bible, you probably already have figured this out. That is that the Gospels are not biographies. Now, someone who is new to the faith or someone who is not a Christian, not familiar with the Scriptures, uh, will pick up a gospel and they'll read and they'll think, well, this is like the Bible version of a biography. Well, for those of you who are students of Scripture, you know that can run amok pretty quickly, right? If you start reading the gospels as biography, all of a sudden you start saying, well, why did they put it that way? Why did they describe it that way? Uh, maybe the closest that we have to a biography, but it's not a biography, would be uh, the, the gospel of Luke and the accompanying uh, Acts. But the Gospels are a unique kind of narrative history. That's, and I, I like that definition, narrative history. But they're unique. In other words, you're not going to encounter another kind of literature that is like the Gospels. They deliver it to us in a narrative, and so oftentimes we're reading the, the story, we're reading the account, but it is also historical, but it is also unique in that each Gospel is shaped by the writer and his context, but the ultimate story is Jesus. That's it. In other words, if you don't get finished reading Matthew and think, wow, that was a unique book that 100% of it was to reveal Jesus. If you don't get done with Mark and go, wow, that was a unique book delivered to me to, to, that I might know everything that I can know, or not everything that I can know, but more about Jesus, so forth and so on. I mean, that's even how John gets to the end of his gospel, isn't it? And then he says, to paraphrase John, the libraries aren't big enough 
to contain everything that I could tell you. So I had to narrow the scope quite dramatically, John says. But here's what I've delivered to you, that you may know Jesus. So the Gospels are narrative histories. They are about Jesus and they are by a specific writer and written within that writer's context. Now, scholars, and I've told you this before, uh, scholars believe, uh, but this is speculation, but I think it's a fairly good argument. Uh, Scholars believe that of the Gospels, the first Gospel that was written was the Gospel of Mark. Uh, because, and the reason why they believe that, is we see uh, uh, fragments and quotes in Matthew and also in Luke that are taken, it appears to be, from Mark. Uh, We also have a fairly good idea that coming after that was either Matthew or Luke, probably Matthew, and probably the last gospel to be written was the gospel of John, which is unique in and of itself. If you have read through the Gospels a number of times, you have probably figured out that Matthew and Mark and Luke are very similar. And many times we'll deal with the the same, uh, here's a literary term for you, the same uh, pericopes. A pericope is a scene within Scripture. So if it's Jesus feeding uh, the 5,000 and you see that show up in different places, that's a a pericope. That's a, a, a scene within one of the Gospels. And yet when you get to John, you go, whoa, this is very, very different. We're not starting out with the genealogy of Jesus. We're not starting out with the reporter's account like Luke. We're starting out with... In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And, and wow, this is, this is poetry. And, and it is. It is Greek poetry that begins the Gospel of John. And we begin to see that, that John writes very differently, very differently from, for example, Luke. Uh, Luke writes uh, like a doctor, doesn't he? Very straightforward, to the point. I'm giving the information, pointing you to Jesus. But John says, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to paint pictures for you. And I'm going to take my time. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to paint it in such a way as it will glorify and magnify Jesus. And then we read the Gospel of Mark, which is uh, more than likely Luke's testimony uh, to Jesus. We read the Gospel of Mark and we're out of breath, aren't we? The most repeated word in the Gospel of Mark was uh, translated quickly, swiftly, hurry up. And, and you get through Mark and you go, oh, I'm exhausted. That was so fast. All of these are testimonies to God the Holy Spirit carrying along, as the Scripture says, that unique person at that moment in time. And so it's written by a certain person in a specific context, and we have to remember that. But again, ultimately, the Gospels are about Jesus. And this is one of the reasons why I have emphasized through this study uh, over the last number of weeks is that we should avoid asking the question, what does this say to me? I've, I've read John. What does John say to me? Um, as I've said before, wrong question. In fact, the better question, or really the true question is, what does this book, what does this passage say about Jesus? And I I would say that if you're taking notes, I'd put that in all caps. 
all of us should learn to read the Gospels asking, not what does this say to me, who cares? But what does this say about Jesus? Because what it says about Jesus is very important to me, it's very important to you, but I have to avoid the modern tendency to read myself into the Gospels. The Gospels are not about you. Sorry to break it to you. They are about the most important person in your life. That is Jesus. So that distinction is key. In reading the Gospels, what will we learn? Well, here's just a couple of things. And again, you know this intuitively, but I want to just lay it out for you. A couple of things that we're going to learn. We're going to learn what Jesus did. You're going to read all four Gospels and you're going to go, wow, I've got a pretty, I've got a pretty good idea of what Jesus did within His earthly ministry. Noting that that which is not important for us to know about Jesus is not included. For, for example... Um, Roman Catholics will argue that Jesus performed miracles when He was a child. And uh, if any of you have ever read uh, Anne Rice's uh, fictional novel of Jesus, um, which, which to, to be clear, um, I think is brilliant. And I, I, I disagree with probably 50% of, of the theology or the history that's in it. But it's a brilliantly written novel by the lady that ran, wrote all those vampire novels and everything. Anyway, she came back to faith later in life as a Roman Catholic, wrote this novel. It's brilliant. I recommend it. Just don't buy all of it. Uh, but in it, she's writing about Jesus and he'll, 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 he'll touch something and it will go from uh, clay into a flying dove and all of these different things. And, and of course, your imagination just runs wild. None of it in the Gospels. None, none, none of it. And you say, well, did Jesus do that? Now, theologically, I don't think He did since we have a specific beginning of the descending of the Holy Spirit's manifestation upon Him, so forth and so on. But that's another argument for another day. The point is, is that what is not in the Gospels is important. And it's not an argument from absence. It's just to say that if the Lord wanted us to know something about Jesus, He would have included it in the Gospels. And I think that's an important point of reference. The second thing that we'll learn from the Gospels is what Jesus taught. What Jesus taught. And I'm going to come to that in just a second when we talk about parables. The third thing that we're going to see is who Jesus is. Who Jesus is. How many times in reading the Gospels do we see this testimony of, wow, there it is, over and over and over again. Now, you, you've got to be a good student of Scripture to pick up on all of it, right? Uh, when Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am, well, you've got to be a decent uh, uh, student of Scripture to know that that's not a misstep grammatically that there's an intentionality to Jesus saying that. He's specifically drawing upon the Old Testament name of God and God's reference to Himself as I Am. But over and over and over and over again, even the soldiers standing at the foot of the cross testify, surely this was the Son of God. Over and over again, we see the testimony of who Jesus is. And then fourthly, it also teaches us what it means to be a disciple. It teaches us what it means to be a disciple. 
All right, so within the Gospels, there are two subgenres that I want to cover because these are the ones that oftentimes uh, will give people the, the certain fits when they're reading them because they go to it and they expect a biography. And all of a sudden, and I'll begin with the first one, uh, they come to parables. Parables. And they think, wow, what a lousy biography. I can't even understand these parables. So, what are parables and why did Jesus use them? What are parables and why did Jesus use them? Well, I want to quote to you Jesus Himself on why He used parables. And if you're taking notes, I'm drawing from Matthew, I'm quoting from Matthew chapter 13, verses 13 and 15. Because Jesus' disciples asked Him, What gives? Why don't you be so? Why don't you just be straightforward? Why don't you just tell them? Why do you keep teaching in parables? It's like one man said to my to my youngest son. He said, "You know the thing that I don't get about Jesus is is that if he wanted people to follow him and be saved, why didn't he just come out and say it and be a lot more clear? He could have he could have had a lot more followers." And my son says, "Me no think he get it." I don't think he gets it, especially when Jesus said, hey, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can have nothing to do with me, and everybody left except the few disciples. Well, I don't think Jesus was trying to win a popularity contest, right? So why was he teaching with parables? Here's what he says, and I quote, This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. What's Jesus saying? But Jesus is saying, I am using parables intentionally because the hard-hearted will not understand. Now, who is it? that opens our spiritual eyes. Is it us? Is it our willpower? No, it's the Holy Spirit. And so the, it's the Holy Spirit that opens our eyes, and Jesus knows that it is the Spirit who will open his the eyes of His sheep, that they may see, that they may understand. And yet, we know that parables were difficult. We see that even Jesus' own disciples struggled to understand what He was teaching. So I want to walk through a couple of things that will be helpful, I think, in understanding how to read parables as a born-again Christian. The first is, is that parables are not allegories. Parables are not allegories. Does everybody know what an allegory is? Well, I'll give you a great example, uh, because most Christians know this. Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. That's an allegory. 
And so when you're reading an allegory, which is a narrative in which the main details of a story represent realities in the world in which we live, when you're reading Pilgrim's Progress and Christian encounters whatever the case is that he encounters, we know that that is an allegory pointing to something within the Christian's life that they truly encounter. And so over and over again in Pilgrim's Progress, as we're reading it, we know that these are pointing to something that is in the real life of the Christian, whether it be physically or spiritually or whatever the case is. But parables are not. And this was one of the great missteps of the medieval age. Not all medieval translators and interpreters did this, but many did. And this led to many missteps within the church. Reading a parable as an allegory will lead you so far out into left field, I'm not sure that you'll be able to find your way back. It's that difficult in understanding. To understand a parable then, we must understand its scope. And one of the things that was very helpful to me as a theology student is learning that you're not supposed to understand nor interpret every little bitty tiny detail in a parable. Parables are stories that are to convey a general truth, a general meaning. So if you're you're reading the theological significance into the slop of the parable of the prodigal son, you you, you probably went too far, probably went a little too far, right? So think about this, for example. In the the, uh, parable of the good Samaritan, what's the general message? What is the general message? Keep me out of the weeds. Don't go into detail. Just what's the, the general message of the good Samaritan? Okay, love your neighbor as yourself, which is how it began, right? Because a lawyer wanting to justify himself said, who's my neighbor? And Jesus doesn't answer him straightforward, right? What's he do? He gives him a parable. The parable draws him in. In essence, what Jesus says to the lawyer is, wrong question, right? The question is not, who is my neighbor? That's the wrong question. The question is, what? The question is, is how does God show love to us? How do we show love to everyone? How do we show love to everyone based on how God has loved us? To understand some parables, however, you have to dig a little bit deeper. The Good Samaritan parable is a real easy one. Just about everybody gets that one. But sometimes in a parable, Jesus will give us comparisons. And so think about it this way, and I know many of you will know this, where Jesus is teaching a parable and He'll say, the kingdom of heaven is like... So like or as shows us that there's a simile there, right? We're doing a comparison. Okay, it's, 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 like, it's like what? And Jesus uses a series of these to teach us what's the kingdom of heaven like. And so when you're reading that, what you want to look at is you want to say, okay, Jesus is teaching me something about His kingdom. And what is the general point? What is the general teaching 
that He is teaching me about the kingdom of heaven. And sometimes Jesus will use parables and link them together. So for example, and I don't have it in my notes, uh, but in Matthew, there are a series of parables. For example, this is I, I know this from, from study. I know the parables leading up to the prodigal son for example, as you're walking through these different parables, there are what you would call linking parables. In other words, this parable teaches me something. The next one we go, wow, that seems like it's teaching the same thing except from a different perspective. You get to the third parable, you go, now I know it's teaching me the same thing, but this is also from a different perspective to where we get down to the final parable and they link together. And so we'll also want to, when we're studying parables, not only understand the general teaching of it, but understand that Jesus will from time to time link parables together so that we can get a better and greater understanding of this. So that's parables. Parables uh, are general truths. Again, just to belabor the point, when you're reading a parable, please read it as a generalization. If you have gotten down into the weeds and are trying to interpret different things in the parable, you probably have missed the point of the parable. The meaning of a parable should, as a general truth, just jump off the page. You should read it and you should go, Aha! I see. It's like the, the pearl of, of, of great wealth. You know, you, well, you don't have to go into a study of pearls and diving and how pearls come about or anything like that. You just go, Oh, wow. The kingdom of heaven is of extraordinary wealth. That's the general truth. Most of the time, you'll catch it right when you first read it. Number two, the other area in the the, uh, Gospels that give us fits is miracles. Miracles. Uh, Again, some people have interpreted miracles uh, within the New Testament as just biographical. There it is. Now I know it happened. That was amazing, wasn't it? But we need to understand, as it is introduced to us, what a miracle is and what a miracle is not. And one of the things that is surprising to many as they begin to read the Bible more and more is how infrequently miracles happen within the Scriptures. If you look at it from a time perspective, the periods of time, if this is our biblical history, the points of time in which miracles occurred were right here and right here. That's about it. Little bitty tiny dots within the timeline of biblical history. And yet, they're so captivating, aren't they? I mean, we read a miracle and we go, wow. Uh, I was joking with uh, uh, Greg Hartman sent me a a text uh, yesterday and it was something happening in a pagan church and and I mean it was just it was it was stomach turning wasn't it Greg I mean I'm just like this is just awful and I and I I texted him back and I said you know you know that part where Elisha is up on top of the mountain and and the troops are sent up by the king and and uh, and Elisha says well if I am the man of God reigned I'm far from heaven kaboom and then the next group kaboom and the next group you know and the last guy is just begging on his knees please don't call down fire from heaven I told Greg I said I know we can't call down fire from heaven, but in this moment, in this one moment where uh, God is being blasphemed in a church uh, as a they and a she, I'm like, man, fire from heaven. Yeah, bring it. But 
That's not the era in which we live. But there were eras within biblical history in which miracles occurred, and we need to read them in their context. And incidentally, this would be the case with the Old Testament genres as well in terms of narrative. So we think about the miracles uh, of Moses. We would think about the miracles of the Old Testament prophets, like the example that I just gave. But of course, in the New Testament Gospels, we think about the miracles of Jesus. Now, what were miracles doing? Were all of the miracles that Jesus performed recorded in Scripture? No. Why did Jesus perform some miracles and in some places and not miracles in other places? In other words, as I said before, is if someone could just reach out and touch his cloak and be healed, why didn't they put him in the back of a chariot and let his cloak fly out and just run him up and down the streets? And everybody could just stand there like high fives, just boom, 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 boom. Everybody could be healed. And they could go, okay, now we're done with Israel. Now let's go to Samaria. Okay, now we're done with Samaria. Let's go to... And they could just send Jesus all over the world. Everybody could be healed of their disease. Well, it's silly, isn't it? That's not what the miracles are about. Jesus didn't come to heal everybody of their illness, but rather, and here's what Luke records in Acts chapter 2, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through Him in your midst, as you yourselves know, and Peter proceeds with the gospel. This is you saw it. You saw the signs and wonders that He performed. And if we look at that, what we see, and just break it down, we see in miracles, we see works of power. We see wonders. And we see signs. That's what, P, that's what uh, Luke is recording here as Peter declared it. Works of power, wonders, and signs. So why did Jesus perform these? Of course, the short version is, is they testify to who He is. In fact, that's what He said to the Pharisees, isn't it? I mean, hey, if you don't believe what I'm saying, have you not been paying attention? I mean, who, who does this? Who heals the sick? Who raises the dead? Who does these things? But their hard hearts would not allow them to see Him. Miracles in Scripture then accomplish the following. Number one, they demonstrate the power of God in a way that causes wonder and awe. So as good readers of the Gospels, here's an application point, when you see a miracle in the Gospels, you should go, I've never seen that before. I have never seen that before in my life. I'm 51 years old. Never. Ah, that's extraordinary. Yes, it is. Demonstrating the power of God. Number two, express His mercy to the weak and need and His judgment on sin. That's what miracles reveal. They're showing God's mercy in that moment in time. Why was this man born blind? Was it because of his sin of his parents? It's because of his sin. No. Why? That you may see the glory of God. That Christ might be magnified before your eyes. And so we show, see God's mercy in that and we see His glory. Thirdly, 
Miracles confirm and authenticate those who inaugurate new epochs of divine activity and are the divinely commissioned bearers of a new stage of revelation. Again, this is our understanding as Protestants. This is our understanding as Reformed and Presbyterians. And that is, is that, for example, within the New Testament, the New Testament miracles occurred while God was giving His special revelation. At the conclusion of that special revelation, the miracles ceased. We see that in the Old Testament as well. As Scripture is given, miracles happen. When God is not giving His special revelation, those miracles cease. I realize that this uh, distinction as uh, traditional Protestants differs from, for example, Pentecostals and some Roman Catholics, etc., etc. But in, in our tradition, we believe the canon is closed. Therefore, miracles have ceased and no longer continue in the sense of miracles from a wonders and signs of wonders performed by someone such as Christ and the apostles. Number four, they, the miracles defend and advance the kingdom of God at significant epochs of its history. It's showing that the kingdom of God is expanding. The kingdom of God, Jesus says, has come. The kingdom of God has come, said John the Baptist. We see that message repeated over and over, and the miracles convey this. And then finally, miracles give us brief glimpses of the way in which God will fully and finally overcome Satan and the effects of His work and restore men and women to what He intended them to be. When we see Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead, Lazarus is not yet glorified. It's the same body that went into the tomb. It's the same body that his sister warned Jesus about. Same body, different than when Jesus resurrected from the dead. But even then, even then, we get but a glimpse to say, ah, but there will be one day where the final miracle will occur. And we will have new bodies and a new heaven and a new earth without sin. That's what a miracle gives us a glimpse of. So, what's the significance of a, uh, of the miracle in the Bible? Let me encourage you this as you're reading your uh, Gospels, and even the Old Testament accounts as well. If you want to understand why that miracle is where it is, And keep in mind that many parts of the Gospels are not written in chronological order. That's why if you're following them along and trying to match them up, you'll go, well, well, which happened first and when did Jesus go to Jerusalem? Well, I, I thought Jesus had already been to Jerusalem and now He's back there again in this Gospel. You don't read the Gospels in chronological order. And the miracles, as they are placed there, they're placed with significance. So the second thing that you're supposed to do after you witness a miracle in the Gospels, after you raise your jaw back up and go, that was extraordinary, then you go, now, why is it here? Because the writer of the Gospel will always put a miracle there to teach us something. It's never haphazard. There's always a theme, there's always a theological point that the writer is getting at in teaching us something there. And the way that you understand that is start with the context. Start with the context. Don't get out of the context. Start, where is Jesus? What city is He in? Where is He? What's He doing? He's in Peter's home, and now Peter's mother-in-law's sick. 
And then he heals her, and now she's up serving. And uh, Well, that's a, that's a context. And so you're going to look at those miracles and understand that they are not presented for us to ask, how can I do this? But, sort of like when I said you don't read the Gospels and say, what does this mean to me? You say, what does this tell me about Jesus? What's the same thing about miracles? You don't read the miracle to say, how can I do that? How can I conjure up that kind of magic? No, you read it to go, who is this man? Like the disciples did on the sea, right? Who is this man that he can do these miracles? Don't let your familiarity with Scripture take away the wonder of the majesty of Jesus Christ and the miracles that He performed. I am, I am out of time. So next week we're going to have to continue this further delaying, right? Mile three of the marathon. Uh, Next week, we are going to look at uh, epistles, because I think it's important for us to to look at that. And then we are going to look at the apocalypse, sometimes translated as revelation. And I'm not going to interpret revelation for you, but I am going to teach you how to read it, which will be fun. Let me pray for us. Our God in heaven, we thank You for Your Word. O God, help us to be better students of Your Word. Teach us to read Your Word. Teach us to dive in and to dig and to enjoy Your Word to the maximum because You have given it to us. And it is a gift that we so frequently take for granted. We thank You that in this time that You have given us a full and complete canon of Scripture. O God, may we be faithful students of Your Word. O God, return to us a sense of wonder and amazement of what is recorded in Scripture that we may better see You and glorify You. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.